welcome to Pod Academy. This podcast, Is London Like It Used To Be, delves into the world of the capital's walking guides and reveals a few surprises about the city's well-known tourist spots along the way. Tourism is big business, generating £115 billion a year for the UK economy. And whether as a result of the age of austerity encouraging people to holiday at home, or even a re-engagement with our heritage, domestic tourism is making an ever greater contribution to this overall figure. This is all good news for London's walking guides, who primarily develop walks for interested locals or those keen to get under the skin of the city. So I donned my walking shoes and headed off to meet some of the people who were setting the standard and raising the bar in the rather crowded world of guiding. My specialist subjects are history of art and architecture and history of science. And I'm particularly interested in um, printing and publishing, the way people lived, um, housing, things like that. Caroline Dunmore and her colleague, John Finn, are both qualified walking guides and head up the Diploma of Special Study in Tour Guiding at the University of Westminster. I've been talking to people about this in the process of making this podcast and the amount of people who are surprised that there is a course that allows you to become a guide. I think people just think you have an idea and then you head out onto the streets and you start telling people about it. Well, I think some people think that's what you do. Right. And that's the variable quality of guiding you okay. get out there. And what we're trying to do here is to raise that standard up into professional level. Both Karen and I probably hear guides giving out absolute nonsense to people and it's really quite worrying. And so the whole idea of this and other guiding courses in London was to raise that um, level of professionalism and accuracy of content, of interest, information, and also entertainment as well. It's all those things together. It's true that it, it is possible to go out on the street and offer your services as a guide. The quality is variable, and what we're trying to do is, is introduce a standard of excellence. So I'm with Caroline and John in the very grand surroundings of the courtyard of Somerset House. Caroline, why have you brought me here to start off with? Somerset House is one of my favourite places in Westminster and in the whole of London. It's a very, very important building. And in particular, I wanted to bring you here because we're going to be talking about two guided walks that I do. One of them is on the history of architecture and one of them is on the history of science. And Somerset House is an important player in both those stories. So we've walked up to the north side of the square. What is it in particular that takes your interest here? Well, I wanted to show you the bust above the entrance doorway here. This is where students of the Courtauld Institute of Art come, and on the other side, of course, visitors to the Courtauld Gallery will go in there, and I'm guessing that they don't look up to see this interesting bust. You probably can't recognise who it's supposed to be. Uh, no, no, no idea, actually. <laughs> well, it's the, uh, the great English scientist Isaac Newton. The reason that he's here is because... This part of Somerset House, which is called the Strand Block, 
When it was built from the 1770s through to the 1790s, it was purpose-built to be the home of three learned societies. They were the Royal Society, uh, the Society of Antiquaries, so they were essentially historians, and the Royal Academy of Arts, which was um, just a very new organisation, just a few years old at the time, which looked after architecture, sculpture and painting. The Royal Society were housed on this side and that's why they chose Isaac Newton, who'd been dead for about 50 years by then. Okay. He, he had been the president of the Royal Society, but by the time that the Royal Society moved here to Somerset House, he, he had been dead for 50 years or so. But he had been such an influential and important scientist that he was the one that they wanted to put above the doorway to represent science and British science. And I see on the opposite doorway, there's another classical-looking figure. Who, who's that? I, I don't recognise him. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could say, look, that's William Hogarth or Joshua Reynolds or something like that. Uh, in fact, they chose Michelangelo. There was, oh. there was no English artist who had the stature of Newton, and they felt that Michelangelo was the one to put above the doorway of the Royal Academy of Arts to represent art. It's a year-long course, and... Uh, through that time, the students have to attend the weekly session at the University of Westminster, appear every other Saturday on the street to train themselves as, as guys on the streets. Be trained by us. And be trained by us, <laughs> exactly. And they have to take uh, two practical examinations, one in the London Transport Museum and one out on the street. Uh, this summer it was in Regent's Park and uh, Environs. And they have to write two written pieces one under exam conditions and the other as a piece of submitted research. So it's not for the faint-hearted? No. It's a huge amount of work and there's, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Of all things I've ever come across, of all learning activities I've ever come across, this is one that combines ha having to, to learn stuff, learn facts, but having to develop the, your performance skills effectively. And so the, the way I designed the Westminster course was that every single week there would be an element of, of each. From the word go, I've been emphasising that um, guiding is about heritage interpretation, that what they are is heritage interpreters. It, it's not just about learning a, a load of facts that they're going to regurgitate. It's not about writing a script that they're going to follow. It's about them following their own interests and their passions, the aspects of London that really capture their imagination, doing some robust research and then thinking through how they can tell that story in a really, really engaging way. What John and I are aiming to do in the, in the Westminster course and um, from the coming year onwards in, in the Clark One and Islington course, Islington course is to inject a bit more of a theoretical understanding of what heritage interpretation is about and can be and what the role of the tour guide is. Um, a, a sort of a sociological approach to it really and getting the the students to reflect on their practice and thinking about how they they're adding to the fabric of London and London society by telling the, the various stories that they're telling so yeah we think that that um, it will bring a um, an extra dimension to a guide's training to, to take this more theoretical approach Along Whitehall, the street lamps glow in pools of liquid light. 
and in the square the fountains toss luminous sprays of glistening white. And far above the hurrying people, on top of his tall Corinthian column, Nelson stands high in the sky with his one eye focused out to sea. Amidst the hustle and bustle of Trafalgar Square, one of London's central tourist spots, Caroline, you've brought me to the very edge of the square, to something which I've certainly never taken any notice of before. It's a big brass plaque with various knobs and bits and bobs sticking out of it. What is it? Well, this is something that was um, embedded here to give the weights and measures the imperial units. So back in the 1820s, there was a Weights and Measures Act which introduced the imperial units that we all learned when we, um, we were at school, the inch, the foot, the yard, and so on. And uh, later on, the 1870s, they embedded this plaque here which actually defines, it gives the definitions of those measures. And we can walk along this, this north edge of Trafalgar Square and we, we'll see markings for um, other units, like the, the very old-fashioned ones, like the pole and the perch and the link and the chain that none of us can ever remember how to, how to define. So this is something that uh, guides love. Trafalgar Square is one of the most famous spots in the world. But even born and bred Londoners probably don't know that there's this unusual feature here. John, did you know about this? Um, I did actually, but oh, right. I was quite right uh, that it's uh, one of those unknown bits of London. The other unknown thing, of course, is we're standing in a very iconic space in London where tourists come to look at Nelson's Column and enjoy the sun as we are today. But they might not be aware that actually there's a, another history to this space as well. Back in the 1880s, Britain was undergoing yet another of its cycle of economic recessions. And during that time, of course, there were no welfare state to support those who are unemployed. And there was a great deal of agitation about those people who were out of work and poor and their families starving. And so they organised a demonstration to come down from Clerkenwell in north of London, down through the streets, into this square to protest about the situation. So that was in November of 1887. And huge numbers of people assembled in the square and they were addressed by uh, people like William Morris. Uh, I'm not sure how they, in the days before microphones and our speakers, they all heard him, but <laughs> the square was packed with over 150,000 people. However, also the government had ordered out 600 lifeguards and grenadier guards who attacked the crowd and several people died or were crushed to death. It was called Bloody Sunday, a name that's probably been forgotten because of the Irish troubles, but it was named Bloody Sunday at that time and became a, a big sort of cause celeb of uh, liberals and radicals of the day. I must admit, standing here, surrounded by tourists, you say people enjoying the sun and looking at the fountains, I, I had absolutely no idea that something so chilling and, and tragic actually took place here. That, that seems to be the wonderful thing about the walks that you do, is just opening people's eyes to a city that they never even really knew existed. I think that's absolutely right, Alex, that what we're doing is peeling back the layers and telling different stories. And I think the other thing that um, John and I have been wanting to show today is the way that there are very, very different stories that you can tell. So I've been telling you some things about the history of science in London 
John's been talking about uh, social history, history of protest and, and so on. And there are all sorts of other different angles that you can take, as, as you know. So it's, it's fascinating, just so many different stories that you can dig out from, from what we see around us in London. One graduate of the course is Mel Adams, whose walks are certainly not for those of a delicate disposition. My new tours are going to be for adults. This is the way I would like to go now. They're going to be adult-orientated. Tell it as it is. Tell the history as it would have been lived at the time um, that it was happening. I've got a walk which is entitled Prostitutes, Pansies and Punks. I mean, I make it very, very, very apparent right at the beginning of the walk if they're offended by la bad language if they're offended by sexual positions or sexual diseases or whatever. I'm going to be, going to be talking about this. I usually get a round of applause at that point because they're, they're, that's what they're there for. They want to hear it. You know, and as I said, it's not for sensationalism. It's because it's factual. It's real. And the, the people that come along are completely fascinated and mesmerised by some of the stories, of course. And some of the stories are great. You know, people's social history to me is so important. Um, but sex most definitely sells. <laughs> She's all fingers and thumbs now, I tell you. <laughs> and loud, you will hear them say, If you have the money, dear, we have got a kind to spare. That is the policy of the folks from Piccadilly. I think basically, yeah, with these, these tours, I've, I've set out to also educate people. Because um, a lot of people that come along are gay people and they really have no idea of the repression that they would have experienced 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, they could have been imprisoned. People had to do it behind closed doors in private because if they did it out in the open, everybody, their, their work colleagues, their family, their friends, you know, that didn't know about their sexual orientation could suddenly turn on them. And it, I mean, people, killed themselves if they were caught often. The Thames was full of gay men's bodies because they could not cope with the fact that they were going to be taken to court and basically put upon that pedestal and people were going to be looking at them going, he's a queer, he is a queer. I'm lucky, I am very free. I can shout out the window, I'm gay. And also, I can go and tell other people about this. And well, I'm not saying that people won't jeer because sometimes you do get jeering. You know, people jeer, but only they jeer anyway. But I can still do it, and that's my freedom, and I'm so grateful for that. And it's all the people that I talk about on my tour that helped towards bringing that freedom. Well, let's uh, hit the streets and go and hear about some of those people. Fabulous. Come with me, my dear. Here we stand in Piccadilly Circus, the statue of Eros, uh, with all these tourists around us. Um, but this is the area, once upon a time, that was rife for prostitution, male and female. And we've got names like Quentin Crisp. He was a prostitute in this area for six months. And this area, not known as the Dilly at that particular uh, time, but would have been frequented by the effeminates. 
the the men that dressed like women, well, half women, I would say, because they'd always wear suits. Uh, but they would have hennaed hair, um, wearing a little bit of rouge, a little bit of lipstick, and they would frequent the cafes of Soho when they weren't busy on the dilly or on the game. Um, and this area for male prostitution has always been uh, quite a magnet. Um, the dilly, right up until the 1990s, uh, this has uh, been an area for male prostitution. You are my home. You're the one I adore. You're the one that my twisted heart adores. Now there's a great little arcade which is also not too far from here called the Burlington Arcade. I mean it's beautiful now, if, if you ever walk down there it's gorgeous shops, very very expensive and you've got the Beatles in there which is their own police force as well. But once upon a time those little shop fronts would have a very innocent lady uh, making a hat or hemming a dress and in the back room her friend Gladys with her legs spread, <laughs> you know, entertaining gentlemen and they would take it in turns. So when she'd finished or she was a little tired, she would go out and carry on hemming the dress or carry on making the hat. It was a great area for prostitution once upon a time, the Burlington Arcade. I bring them right up to the contemporary times because over here, if you can just see where the Metra is uh, now, this once upon a time in the 80s was a very famous club called Taboo. Uh, the 1980s club, run by this extraordinary man called Lee Bowery. He was Australian. He came here to basically come out, and he certainly did when he came to London. He was notorious. I actually knew Lee, um, not extremely well, but I knew uh, certainly of him anywhere I went because I used to go to Taboo many years ago. He would dress in the most extraordinary outfits, and if it was my walking tour and if this was visual, I could show you pictures of him. Um, he would often be seen going up and down here in what he was known as his mankini, um, so you can imagine one of that, or as a wedding cake. Um, he had another cook. All these weird and wonderful outfits. But that club was notorious. I mean, it was revolting, but the atmosphere there was just so fabulous and vibrant with all these people dressed to kill. And uh, Lee Bowery was one of those. And you'll never have someone like him again. Unfortunately, he died of HIV-related illness. Um, but he certainly was an inspiration. He came from a place in Australia called Sunshine. And he certainly put a ray of sunshine here in London on our dull grey skies. <laughs> he was fabulous. He was an original, a one-off. But um, because of his, his uh, sexuality, um, he's very much part of my tour. And other characters, you know, that I could go on about. Muriel Belcher, who had a club just up here, her first club in 1948, called The Music Box, who became a celebrity lesbian um, in Soho. Um, you know, had people like Jeffrey Bernard, uh, Francis Bacon, George Melly. Those people, they make this place we're standing in at the moment what it is today. Slightly north of the Barbican, I stumbled across a stall for unseen tours at a weekend community street party. To a soundtrack of PA systems, two members of the team outline the scheme that seeks to harness the charitable and social potential of guided walks. Hi, I'm Faye and I am part of a group called uh, Unseen Tours. Uh, we're a social enterprise 
and what we do is um, we coach people who are homeless or formerly homeless to lead walking tours in various areas around London. Hi, my name is Henry. I'm a tour guide from Unseen Tours. And um, I don't know, this, these tours is uh, run by homeless people with their own like stories to, to tell and stuff. And of course, it's not a, tour is not about the homeless people. Tour is about uh, local history, architecture, street arts. The idea came from a um, group called the Sokmov, very informal grassroots uh, group of friends essentially that, go, that meets and goes out once a week and just sort of chats to homeless people that we see. Um, so we sit down with them and give them a pair of socks or something like that just to break the ice. But the idea and emphasis is to maybe you know break through the isolation and loneliness people feel on the street. So the tours stem from our conversations we had with our street friends about how we could work together to change people's perceptions of homelessness as well as to get them some kind of income um, and that's how we came to the tours. So they uh, just found me on the old seat roundabout and um, by doing a sock mobbing giving like a socks, crisps, drinks and uh, chatting every week and then like uh, months, months, six weeks after we they were coming once a week and six weeks after we met first time they told me like a they have idea of doing the tours, but um, I have to do my own tour. So basically I need to do my own research, find my own route. They're gonna help me with the internet access, they're gonna help me with, uh, I don't know, when they meet me, like buy me food and drink, but like a tour I have to do it myself. A lot of times people have a, a misconception or, or, you know, sort of a an idea of what it is to be homeless. Um, and we're trying to break that down a bit because, you know, th there are some negative stereotypes. Well, because who knows better the streets than the people who live on them, so... And many people who come, you know, for example, my tour and say, like, I've been living in the area for 10 years, I want you to tell me something I don't know, so... And after the tour they say, like, I did... I did. Basically, everything I say people don't even know. So and they they're walking past uh, past those landmarks every day, but they never have a time to stop. It's a big city, so you just go to work and back, and you just never have a time to look around and think about what's happening there. Essentially, what it is is building up trust, um, because a lot of times people on the streets are treated fairly badly by everybody. We we don't have any agenda. And I think people find it quite refreshing. So that's, you know, we, we've, we know quite a lot of people who are on the street. And through that, you know, people have got to know us and trust us. And so when, you know, when we talk about the tours, people are like, yeah, we totally want to be involved with that. So, yeah. It was a stepping stone. So basically, I'm, I'm now a different circle of friends. And uh, I don't sleep on the street no more like that, rough. I stay in bed and breakfast and then there. So sometimes. So that, that is very important, so um, and more I'm doing these tours, I'm meeting new people and uh, actually from these people who come on our tour, many of them become uh, sock mobbers. It's really personal tours, so people who organize it, they don't make any money out of it, so this is just to help homeless people, so that's, that's cool. And it helped me a lot.
quotes Jonathan Wynne in his book The Tour Guide, guides are urban alchemists who infuse the city's fabric with curious stories, re-enchant neighbourhoods and offer a sort of magical urbanism to their clients. And having spent time with people like Caroline, John and Mel, with their tales of scientific endeavour, social unrest and lasciviousness in Soho, or the Unseen Tours team who actively turn walks into gold to help the homeless, I would be inclined to agree with him. Now I'm off to nurse my blisters. Is London Like It Used To Be was produced by Alex Bingham for Pod Academy. For more information, visit www.podacademy.org.